Good morning. Are you happy to be here today? Yeah. Isn't it good to come with God's people into his presence? We've been in this series of Psalms. This is our fourth one. I'm wondering if you can remember. Psalm 31 was all about praying our anxiety. Remember? I'm not sure you do, but never mind. Psalm 4, praying our worry. Psalm 137, Danny, praying our anger and hatred. Looks like you seem to go online and do those again. You can't have too much of the Psalms, okay? You really can't. They're there for us to orient our lives or to get reorientation when we get lost in the um, life that we do and live with the emotions and tensions that just creep in and overwhelm us back to getting reoriented with our God. I love it. So we're going to keep looking at a psalm today and next week. And today's is all about desire. Psalm 84. But before I get there, I... This psalm is very, very different. It's about our desire. It's about our longings. Most of you have travelled with children or as a child and you hear from the back seat. Oh, and there you go. Now, I'm a great repeater of those words. I didn't ever like the travelling and uh, the uncomfortableness of it. And most of you know I've travelled a fair bit. And it was always a pleasure to arrive. The longing was not really something to be enjoyed. But what we learn as we long and desire for our God is that it can be enjoyed because we enjoy our God. Now, here's the other thing I want to say right from the outset, is that what we desire, what we long for, becomes our God. Now, that can be the true God, or it can be a replaced God, a competing God, an idol. And most of us have got passions and desires and longings that actually consume us and when we do arrive there is a sense of disappointment and so I've got to go for the next desire the next journey the next post to get to but our desire as children of God as people of God needs constantly to be for our God, for therein is our joy, our hope, our delight, our life. So let's just pray as we come into this Psalm 84. Thank you, Lord, that it's true that you are the desire of the nations, as the psalmist writes elsewhere. And deep down within us, you have put that longing to be connected the desire to belong to you, our creator and our redeemer. And as we just walk through this psalm today, hear our hearts and, Lord, get rid of all the confusion and other sidetracks that we pursue so that today 
we can be, as this word has already said, lifting up our hands in adoration to you, Toda, worshipping you, surrendering to you the desire of the nations. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Just recently, I've been reading some of these books. This woman here was once a speaker at GLS. Can you remember her? Her story. An amazing story. During the Rwanda genocide, she, along with seven other women, eight at one stage, were in a tiny little bathroom for 71 days. And uh, during that time, they heard the shouts of the machete-wielding mobs out to kill the croakroaches, kill the snakes, kill, kill. And hatred, the evil of hatred, had pervaded their neighbours, people that they grew up with, and their friends. And pure genocide, one million people killed in the space of 100 days. We lived here in our safe, most of us, in our safe little Australia during that time. Listen to this. Seven weeks in the bathroom had left us all frighteningly gaunt. Our bones pushed into our flesh and our skin sagged. Sitting on the hard floor became increasingly uncomfortable as our muscles and fat disappeared, leaving us with no padding on our bottoms. Despite having two additional women with us, the bathroom grew roomier every day. We were shrinking, and our starvation diet left us weak and lightheaded much of the time. I could tell by my clothes that I'd lost at least 40 pounds. Our skin was pale, our lips were cracked, and our gums were swollen and sore. To make matters worse, since we hadn't showered or changed clothes since we'd arrived, how many days? Seven weeks. Seven weeks. No shower, no change of clothes. We were plagued by a vicious infestation of body lice. Sometimes the tiny bugs grew so engorged with our blood that we could see them marching across our faces. We may not have been a pretty sight, but I've never felt more beautiful. Each day I awoke and thanked God for giving me life. And each morning he made me feel loved and cherished. I knew that he hadn't kept me alive so long and through so much suffering just to let me get killed. That's part of her story. You could, this is in the library down at Door of Hope, so first one there, later can have it. What kept her going? What made it possible for a woman like this to forgive the killers of her family, her mum, her dad, her brothers? What made it possible? It was her desire. She and God knew each other really well. So let's read some of the psalm. The verse, 
one and two up there. I'm not sure how this goes. But it starts off with uh, this, these words. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What are you hearing? What are you hearing as that is said? My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place. Now, lovely there is an interesting little word. Um, We've already had this morning the concept that love is spoken differently in different languages. But this word lovely is probably better translated beautiful. How beautiful, how majestic, how magnificent, how absolutely overwhelming is your dwelling place. Well, that begs the question, where on earth is the dwelling place of God? Where does God live? I remember many years ago being in Calcutta, uh, Calcutta now, on the ship Dulos with a whole lot of people, and we had to give out a million tracts before Christmas. Some were Bengali and some were Hindi. I didn't know who was who. But I remember going out with hundreds of these people from the ship Dulos, and we were handing them out. And this guy wanted to come and talk to me, and I said, well, you hand out the tracks and I'll talk to you. <laughs> and we had a little chat for a, a long time. I like talking better than handing out tracks, that's for sure. And uh, he knew who was Bengali and he knew was Hindi. And I had to get through my quota anyway. So while we were there, the question comes up, do you know Jesus? And he just said to me, he doesn't live in our street. Does Jesus live in your street? Where does God dwell? Now, for someone in the Old Testament, the dwelling place of God was perceived to be the temple. The temple was where God lived. Solomon built this amazing temple, incredible building, magnificent. And God said, even though no one else has built me a house and I don't really live on earth, this is where I will dwell and I will put my name here. This is my address. And people longed to come to the temple, to the courts, and to the place where God was. And they would come up to Jerusalem as pilgrims, regularly singing and praising and worshipping and looking in the distance saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We want to go to the temple, the temple courts, to worship our God. And this was one of the songs that they would sing on their way to the temple. Well, we don't have a temple. It's just as well because the airlines would be crowded with people trying to get there where on earth God dwells. Because when Jesus was on earth, thousand years later, nearly a thousand years later, he actually said to the people one day, see this body, he said, see this body. In three days it will be destroyed and I will rebuild it and it will be built again. And the people were incredulous. What on earth do you mean, they said. 
Look at the temple we've got now. It's been through war and havoc and devastation, and Herod has spent 46 years trying to put it together, and you say three days. What was Jesus talking about? His body. This is the beauty. God came down. First of all, he put his name on a building. Then he said he put his name on Jesus. This is where God lived. Jesus said, my body is the temple. However, we know that in three days it was destroyed. And he said, I will build it again. And so then he said, I, God Almighty, in my spirit, I will make my home in you. God lives in his people. So first we have the concept of temple. Then we have Jesus. But you and I are the place where God lives today. I know sometimes we think it's just in me, and it's true. Jesus does live in you by his spirit. But the concept is that God is building a body a temple, a house made of living stones, made of you and me, his body, his family, his people. So when we say, how beautiful is your dwelling place, today we are referring to God's people. That's where Jesus dwells. So rightly, that Indian man said, Jesus does not live in our street. But does Jesus live in your house, in your street? Jesus is here today. I know we talk about coming to church and God is here, but it's you that God lives in. You got it? You are the beautiful body of Christ. You're the temple. You're the temple. Another image, of course, is the body or the bridegroom. And there's a reality about who we are. God lives in us. This is the Jesus that people will see. This is the Jesus that people know. And sometimes they don't see a beautiful one. They see us in our ugliness. What a challenge. That as we long to be with God, long to be with his people, We come in humility and grace, and we're thankful for that mercy. So my flesh and my heart cry out for the living God. Then we go on to the rest of the verse there, verse 3. And this is what they're saying. They're looking at that temple and saying, wow, 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 wow. And they say to each other, do you know sparrows and swallows build nests in the altar of the Lord, right there. You got the picture? They make themselves home at the altar. They come and they fly and they sing and they bring up their little birds. And we long for this and they have direct access. They can just build a nest there. Can you see how beautiful that is, the picture that they're showing? And it's not a picture of envy, it's a picture of beauty. And the idea here is that they are building their nest at the altar. And the altar speaks to us about surrender, sacrifice. The altar is where Jesus came and his body was destroyed on the cross 
as the sacrifice. And so we've got that intimacy. We've got that connection with God through the altar where we have peace with God, where God Almighty came down through Jesus and he becomes the one that dwells in us and makes it possible for us to know him. How beautiful is that? And so he says, Lord, my God and my King, happy, enriched, blessed are those who dwell in your house, just like the sparrows and the, st- and the uh, swallows. We are enriched. Grab hold of it. We're enriched. No? We are blessed. The favor of the Lord shines upon us through mercy and grace and love. We are his. Everything we have comes from him. I think it's wonderful. I think it's grace. We should be ever praising him. There's such joy there. There's this emotion of overwhelming sense of privilege, enrichment, joy. So during this time, uh, the psalmist has been talking to God. How lovely is your dwelling place? The sparrows are there. And then we come to this phrase, again, God, in verse 5, it says, we're enriched, we're happy, we're blessed because our strength is in you. And as I read this book, frail, hungry, famine, dirty, stinky, lice-ridden, such beauty, such blessedness, such enrichment. I've never, ever had to live like that. But she knew that God had found an address in a little bathroom where there were eight women saved. But this time it says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Uh, pilgrimage is an interesting concept. You know, a pilgrim usually has a knapsack and a water bottle and off you go. And I want you to get this idea. On this earth, in this land right now, we are not meant to be tourists. We're pilgrims. And there's a lot of difference between a tourist. Tourists make sure they've got the camera and uh, knows when their next port of call is. The pilgrim has time to walk and enjoy and be and look all around. Blessed are those who set their heart on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Bacar, they will make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go on from strength to strength till each appears before their God. Now, what is this about? I want to suggest that we all have our valley of Bacar. No one has ever identified whether it's a real place or not, but it's meant to be that place of suffering, the valley, the place of desperation, the place where we often find ourselves, where we feel loss, grief, sadness, where we feel destitute, disappointed, discouraged, desperate, despondent, 
all of those things. And we've all been there. And it's that place where it doesn't matter whether we are living in a bathroom for seven weeks or whether we are living in a mansion forever. We go to that valley because we've all known loss. We go to that valley because we've all known grief. And it's invitational of God for us to walk it and not to deny it. The beauty of the valley of Bacar is that others are with us on the journey. You know, all of my life I read this psalm. I've lived longer years, so I've read it a lot of times. And I don't think I've ever noticed till this time that it says they built it a place of springs. I always assumed it was God that did it. God had the springs. Now, in Jerusalem, they have sandstone, and there's lots of springs. And if you've read the Old Testament, they kept digging wells, trying to find water and all this kind of stuff so that they could feed their sheep. Sometimes they'd put a stone on it, try to cover it up so that other people couldn't find it. But they went through these springs. Now, what does this say? They built the springs. Now, this is the beauty of this psalm. We all go through this valley. They have built springs, springs to nourish. Who are they? Fellow pilgrims. They've written us songs. They've written us, they've written books. They've got stories about the faithfulness of God. They've got hope stories. (laughs) They've got delight. They've prayed. God has met them in the valley of Bacar. And they are journeying with us through life to encourage us. Have you got that? They've translated the word of God for us. They've written beautiful music, poetry, books. They've got stories. They're there. They pray for us. They say, come on, let's go through this together. That's what we find in the pilgrimage of life, fellow pilgrims. But the greatest thing I believe is this. God, our God, is a God who knows sadness. Our God is a God who knows grief. Our God is a God who's been discouraged. Is that heresy for me to say that? Surely God is love. God is good. And I'm saying God is sad. I'm saying God has a God of grief. Why? Because the people he made and created have been taken from him by the evil one and they live as enemies to their father God. That which he made to love and respect and honor and delight in and enjoy have been snatched away and I believe that makes God sad. And I believe he grieves the lostness of humanity And so in the valley of Bacar, our hearts can meet the heart of God who knows sadness, who knows the deepest grief, and we connect. And slowly, that becomes the seedbed for joy. I have met my God. He understands every emotion I have. In the rawness of where I'm at, he knows. He doesn't say, they're there. 
It says here that he sends autumn rain. Only God sends the rain. Others have gone the springs. So with the fellowship of the believers and with the beauty of God, we meet and we have hope. And so we can call it a beautiful place. God in my suffering. God in my grief. Yes, I still grieve, but it's the seedbed of incredible joy and hope and life. Do you believe it? For those who've been there, we know it. This is where God meets us, in the deepest, darkest place, unless the seed of wheat dies. But it says we go from strength to strength. Strength to strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I meet my God there and I have strength to live. And by the way, the psalmist says, by the way, hear my prayer, Lord. Hear my prayer. Verse 8. Lord God Almighty, I know that this is going on, but Lord, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Look on our shield, O God. He's not praying for deliverance. He's not praying, God, get me out of this. He's got time to pray for others. And in this prayer, he's praying for our shield which is the one who protects us and the anointed one. That's language for the king and authorities. He's praying for political leaders. Isn't that beautiful? In the messiness and hurt and pain, the psalmist is praying for others. Delightful. Look with favour on them. Then back to God, the psalmist talks to God and says, God, you know what? You know what? I'd rather spend one day with you than thousands of days with these other people. (laughs) With the people, um, the tents of the wicked. One day, and this is about servanthood. God, I want to serve you. I want to be there. I want to be where your people are. I want to be a servant, even if it's just a doorkeeper. Praise God for the people who open the doors and welcome us every Sunday. Eh? Cheer out for them because they have got this picture well. Better to be a doorkeeper among God's people to serve them than to be anyone else. For our God, our God is a sun and shield. Our God is protector, the light of our life. Our God is like the sun that just shines on us. Our God is the shield, the protector, the one who surrounds us, the one who's with us, the one who's there. I also read this book, Saving My Assassinate, a story of another woman in not Rwanda this time, but Romania, in the awful ugliness of their communist era when to be a Christian... You didn't even have to be a Christian. You could just go to church and your name was listed and you could get killed. Here's another woman who was able to share about Jesus as the assassin came to kill her. He had the gun barrel and she started without fear to be able to talk about her God. 
great story worth reading. There's a couple of books of this around with people who are reading them. Read these stories so that it delights you with what our God can do. What am I trying to say today? Our God can be with us in any circumstance and he addresses that fear and he places in us the ability to trust him as the light, as the shield, as the one who lives inside us, the one who lives inside others, the one who has come down and made his home with us. There's that invitation to trust the invitation to walk and have a life oriented with him, no matter what. And what I've discovered through my life is that when I trust, there is joy and not fear. Most of us have confronted fear, and some still live in fear, but that trust takes us to that beautiful place. And so... To God, blessed is he, he doesn't withhold any good thing. Even in a bathroom with others, even in the life that you live, the goodness of the presence of God, the goodness of him within, the goodness of him in others, knowing that we can trust and not be afraid. He does not withhold his goodness from us. In fact, he says we are enriched, we are blessed, we know how to look the enemy in the eye and know his story, his presence with us wherever we go. This is the beauty of this psalm. It's a psalm of joy. It's a psalm of desire. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of surrender. I surrender to your presence. I surrender to you, the one that lives inside me, and I know that I can trust and not be afraid. And I know that in my trusting, there will be joy, joy like I've never known before. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, that the ones in this room right now have the smile of God on them as they set their hearts on pilgrimage to walk with you, to follow you, to find you in the deep places, to find you in the high places. May each one know your blessing. May each one know your presence. May each one know your smile so that fear and anxiety is replaced by their trust in you and that you will bring joy Lord, we love you. Thank you for your presence with us. Amen.